you know, we built the whole concept around what we call a metal propulsion or metal, metal propellant ecosystem. Um, and that's built on the idea of recycling space debris and turning it into metal propellant to serve the Space Force's growing need for this concept of, uh, you know, what are they calling it? Dynamic space operations or maneuver without regret. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. This week's episode is about a cunning plan to monetize space junk and large pieces of orbital debris for reals. Okay, so here's the problem set that's in need of a set of solutions. First, like litter on Earth, we humans are the ones responsible for the more than 28 thousand artificial objects the 18th Space Defense Squadron tracks. These artificial objects date back to 1957 when Russia launched Sputnik, the first ever satellite. Now, that event kicked off the first space race, which resulted in a lot of rocket launches, and that resulted in second-stage rocket fuselages being left in orbit. Now, some of the older second stages have been known to unexpectedly explode, and that's exponentially increased the number of artificial objects, and until SpaceX developed a reusable rocket, that's been pretty much our modus operandi. Second, until recently, when some satellites reached the end of their operational lives, we've just left them up there, sometimes without enough fuel on board to descend toward the Earth for a fiery disposal in the Earth's atmosphere, or even to maneuver out of the way. It's like leaving a van or a bus in the middle of the New Jersey Turnpike, and accidents happen. In 2009, Russia's defunct Cosmos 2251 T-boned the fully operational Iridium-33 at supersonic speed. That totaled the Iridium satellite and produced 2,000 more pieces of trackable debris. There are now a number of policies regarding responsible space operations and the creation of space junk and debris. They've been written and issued by national governments from various levels. Many space agencies have them, and the Space Force has a set as well. There's also been a number of successful tests demonstrating our ability to capture large pieces of space junk and debris and either drag it out of traffic and into graveyard orbit or take it down to burn up in the atmosphere. But third, there's the problem of the bill to clean up space. Most spacefaring governments have balked. And without government funding, there just hasn't been an agreed pathway to pay for this. But here's the question, and it's not actually all that new. Why not take that gold, that titanium, or the thousands of tons of aluminum and recycle it in space for use as structural beams for space stations or thruster fuel? You know, melt it down and mold it into commodities for sale for a profit. Our guests in this episode say they have the technology to close the loop a space forge, and they're under contract with the U.S. Space Force. We're going to hear about the business case from Cislunar Industries and Neumann Space. But first, let's learn about the technology from Joe Pawelski, co-founder and chief technology officer 
at Cislunar Industries. Here's our conversation. Hello, Joe. Thank you for joining me on the Downlink Podcast. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I brought you onto the podcast to help me and the audience understand just how this in-space forge will work. But before we start, I'd love it if you would take a moment to briefly introduce yourself. You know, your background, what you do at Cislunar Industries. I mean, you do call yourself, and, and I'm quoting here now from your LinkedIn page, you actually call yourself an architect of in-space metal processing, right? What's that? That's right. Uh, yeah, my name is Joe Powelski, and I am an architect of in-space metal processing. So what that means is uh, just like Andrew Carnegie did and many of the other folks that caused uh, metal to be produced on the earth, we are looking to do similar things in space, uh, build the building blocks that need to be built for industrial infrastructure. And your background, I mean, you're an engineer, you're, you know, like, how did you get here? Yeah, so my background is thermal fluids, heat transfer. Uh, I studied aerospace in grad school. Uh, and then in 2007, when I graduated, unfortunately, uh, there was there was some things going on in the economy. Not a lot of aerospace companies were hiring. And I found myself in high-speed manufacturing. Uh, and I spent about 15 years there. So I invented a number of interesting things. One of them is called AnySize. AnySize allows really large production lines. So think about a conveyor that's maybe half a mile long or a quarter mile long. You have to adjust it so it can run a bunch of different products, different different sizes. Uh, so I invented this thing called AnySize that did that. It's in hundreds of plants around the world. Um, I built hundreds of plants, built many, many lines. Um, they were, turns out they're really complicated projects that had to be done in about 10, 10 weeks or so. So rapidly, rapidly done, lots of R&D involved in these. And, uh, you know, uh, I learned that uh, in, in space manufacturing was a thing. And so that's kind of how I, I went from manufacturing back into space. I realized, hey, look, all those skills in high-speed manufacturing, combine those with aerospace, and hey, that's, that's the new space industry that we're looking at right now. You know, you and your team, you know, speaking manufacturing, in building things. I mean, you and your team have built a robotic modular space foundry, a prototype that's already processing simulated space junk or space debris. So melting down the bits and pieces, which I believe you probably call chips and ribbons, right? Right. Like, so take us through the steps of how a space foundry actually works and especially how it'll work in space. Yeah, so the space foundry in its current form is about the size of a mini fridge, if you can imagine that from your college years. Um, in fact, the one we flew uh, on the parabolic flight looked very similar to a college mini fridge. And so what it does is we found out that uh, if you're if you're to look at an upper stage, which would be a, a representative piece of space debris, uh, upper stage is about the size of a school bus. It's very large. Um, Astroscale, KMI, a number of other companies are looking at capturing these. So they're, they're doing a lot of the hard work of actually getting it. Uh, and then we have to figure out how to cut it up and feed it into the furnace. Um, strips and chips are natural ways to cut up an upper stage. You can imagine it's kind of like a big tin can. The walls are a little thicker than a tin can, about a sixteenth of an inch to uh, maybe a quarter inch thick on most upper stages. Um, but the plan is to basically spiral cut that or shred it up into chips and then feed it into our furnace. Um, so we have to consolidate it so it can fit into the interface of our furnace 
And then once it's in the furnace, uh, we don't have any gravity. So this is one of the issues in space. Uh, we have to think about, you know, in a, in a typical foundry, there's gravity. Um, usually a big front end loader kind of is filled with chips and they scoop it up and then they dump it into a big pit. Wouldn't it be nice if it were that, that easy in space? It's, it's more complicated. Um, so we actually use electromagnetics to capture those chips and strips contactlessly. It's like science fiction. It's uh, we actually have some pretty cool videos of levitating metal and melting it and all kinds of neat stuff where we're not touching the metal. But that way we can move in these chips, uh, which uh, can be jagged and get jammed, and, and we can flow those in there without touching anything. It's also important because then we need to heat the chips. And once the chips are hot, then they really cause more wear problems and things in the furnace. Um, we don't have maintenance up there either in the same way that you would in a typical plant. So a lot of metal foundries and things like this, uh, they use a lot of technology, but at the end of the day, there are a lot of big open troughs full of molten metal. You know, they rely on gravity and, and they also rely on being able to just replace um, like some of the ceramics and materials just wear out and they just, they just replace them uh, during routine maintenance. We can't do that in space. So um, it's really about replacing the gravity and making it so that there's no maintenance on these things, which is, those are the big engineering challenges. The rest of it though, uh, you know, we melt down the chips just like we do on the ground here in a foundry. Uh, and then we cast those into different shapes. Right now we cast these into an ingot. that's about one inch in diameter. Um, it's a continuous casting process. So we can make that ingot as long as we want. And we can form that either with uh, cold rolling uh, or through extrusion or various other processes as a secondary forming process in order to make wire, sheets, ribbons, you know, you name it, typical building materials. And where is this prototype actually being tested? I mean, you mentioned it was, you know, flew in a parabolic flight, but where are you actually doing this work? So the first one was tested in a parabolic flight, and that was really interesting. I got to go. Lots of fun. The next version uh, that we test, we, we will fly another parabolic flight, um, but we are planning to fly this. We are scheduled to fly on station, on the International Space Station, uh, in the beginning of 2025 or, or thereabouts. So we'll be flying in the uh, fluid integration rack. Uh, it's referred to as the fur. Uh, the fur is where a lot of experiments are done. Um, and as far as I know, uh, this is by far the most metal that's been cast uh, on station. Uh, so we're pretty excited. Uh, we'll make a number of uh, one-inch diameter rods. Um, they're several inches long. Uh, and then we'll bring those back. And what we're looking for is that the processing parameters. Um, so we know that there are ideal processing parameters, uh, and we're going to test those. But we also know that cooling, uh, heating, like, there's a number of, of, of performance parameters that we may tweak in order to get a minimum viable product. So you know, we may cast a rod that doesn't have quite the same uh, mechanical properties as one that's cast in an ideal, like in a cold mold, et cetera, some of the things that we do on Earth to make really high-grade materials. But in space where there's no gravity and we're not really looking for high-performance materials yet, we're just looking for something that can save us up mass and, and be good enough. We're looking for the minimum viable product. So what are the parameters? What are the, what are the performance parameters that are going to give us the longest life, the least amount of maintenance, you know, and the most material output that we can use? Uh, from that experiment. And, and we'll, we'll, we'll verify that because we'll have samples return to Earth. We'll run a whole mechanical analysis on those and we'll be able to hone in on our parameters. Uh, it's an iterative process, but we need to set the parameters first. So that's, the, that's really exciting uh, coming up. And so when you actually you know, deploy it, where will it end up in space? I mean, are we talking LEO, GEO, MEO, XGEO, Cislunar? I mean, your company's name is Cislunar Industries, right? 
Exactly. Uh, Cislunar space is where Modular Space Foundry is designed for. It's designed to be modular. So the, the first ones that we have designed, again, the, the mini fridge size is based on the, the rack size on station and, and, and what's available for power. There's a number of requirements there, but it's designed to be scalable. So we can, we can put a couple of these together. This one will be running inside the space station, um, but we've, we've actually, we're planning a, a follow-on and that will fly outside of the station. So for the follow-on one, that's where we'll demonstrate that we can operate this in the vacuum of space in various environments. And then we also are part of the Luna 10 cohort for DARPA, uh, which is the 10-year lunar architecture. Um, so we are developing a version of the modular space foundry for the lunar surface. You know, I read that the lab bench prototype uses a simulated aluminum space debris bits. You know, what are the parameters for that? Like, how do you prepare aluminum on Earth to be a close copy of the kind of space debris or defunct satellites that are already up there in orbit? And I asked this because when I read this, I got this vision in my head of you and a bunch of your friends suited up in Kevlar suits and gloves and goggles with hammers and scissors, smashing and cutting aluminum machine junk. Maybe one or two of you even have cutting torches. I mean, how do you make simulated space junk? Well, uh, that is a really good question. Uh, so it started with a requirement study. So we had to figure out, you know, what what is space junk and what does it look like? KMI helped us with this. Astroscale helped us uh, understand what space junk would look like. There's a report out there, the most derelict debris. Uh, we, we, we tend to use the word uh, a derelict space object or a resonant space object is, is a really good term because it might not be, you know, an upper stage that's abandoned is great. Uh, there's, there's some, there's, I think, 13 upper stages that if they ran into each other, they would cause the Kessler syndrome. And if you can remove a couple of them, the chances of the Kessler syndrome occurring, which is where you have a big breakup and it's hard to get things through in certain orbits. Uh, but if you remove just a few of those and turn, turn them to something else, uh, this would drastically reduce that. So um, going after big upper stages is obvious. Um, and then also satellites. So, so step one, requirement study, understand what are we actually trying to capture so we can understand what that material looks like. We identified upper stages and we also identified uh, satellites you know, as being... Uh, like some of these uh, constellation satellites as being really good. They're made of a lot of metal uh, and having an option where you wouldn't have to deorbit them is, is a really good thing. So based on that, an upper stage, uh, we actually went to, uh, to Marshall and we got to look at SLS. Um, I have some SLS material um, that I was provided as part of our NASA work. Um, so we could melt that down and, and see how that performed. And we were able to do uh, alloy. You know, we, we understand what those alloys are made out of. We also looked at uh, some of the Agena target vehicles. Uh, if you remember from the uh, Apollo and, and, uh, program, you know, in order to rendezvous and dock, they used the Agena upper stage. That one's actually, the skin on that is 1 16th inch thick aluminum, and it's 6061 aluminum. 6061 alloy aluminum is one of the most common alloys made. So we were able to order 1 16th inch thick 6061 of the similar temper uh, and cut that into strips and use that as our simulate. Uh, that's what we used on the uh, parabolic flight. Now, uh, thanks to the DARPA work that we're doing and some other things, we have now we have uh, contacts at SpaceX and several of the other large space bus providers. So now we're starting to understand what those are made out of. Um, a lot of these things, though, are made out of aluminum. So that's really convenient. They're, you know, 6061 is quite common. There's some other alloys that are more aerospace alloys. 
Uh, one of them has lithium in it. We try to stay away from that. I can tell you some fun fire stories with that one. Uh, but for the most part, uh, you know, these are uh, pretty common aluminum alloys. Uh, and they're in the, the, the cross, you know, the, the sectional areas of those aren't that hard to reproduce. Uh, but again, you know, making sure that we go back and that they meet the same requirements of what the actual debris is, is how, how we make that simulant. You know, I think a lot of people do know, at least I hope they know that mm -hmm. recycled aluminum coming from cans or car doors, you know, it's already being recycled and recast into other car parts and house siding and rain gutters and patio furniture and the like. But what products will your recycled aluminum be used for, you know, starting with the structures? That's a great question. I, you know, a lot of times in space, we're coming up with these great ideas and, and, and it's a, 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 or have a solution looking for a problem. Um, so, you know, a big part of this is nobody's considered what would you build if you didn't have to launch everything into space? So for us, that's really kind of the initial thing is, is, is we expect that trusses, um, tubes, wire, things like that are what are needed. You know, you look at what is the international space station made out of? Well, there's, there's a lot of trusses connecting modules, um, building a module is something, uh, especially if it's going to be life supporting, uh, that's something that for safety reasons, uh, there may be requirements that would prevent you from doing that on orbit soon, you know, in the near term, but something like a truss that's, that's already well over designed because it's, it's operating in my, you know, in, in microgravity, or there's very little force on it. That's something that you could actually make in space. And, and that's what we refer to as a minimum viable product. Uh, so, so really what we're looking to do right now is we, is we expect tubes, wires, trusses, these sorts of things, um, foils are what are going to be needed. Uh, and, and really the goal of these experiments is to produce those materials, the ingot, at least in this first flight, and then on the next one we'll produce a foil or a ribbon, something like that, some kind of a structural thing. And we'll measure material, uh, mechanical properties so we can actually get a TRL on the material. So technology ready, uh, readiness level is what TRL stands for, uh, for those not familiar with the TRL speak. But uh, TRL normally goes from one to nine. Nine is when uh, you have a, you know, something that's flown, you can rely on it, you could build, you know, you could, you could use that part, you could use that engine, or in this case, you could use that material, and you'd know that it's going to have specific properties, you can use it and build a station, and it's going to do what you think it's going to do. So that's, that's really our major objective right now is to create TRL-9 materials that can be reliably used and, and go into an engineer's toolkit as something that they can build and now harness uh, on-orbit source materials and resources. And I've also heard, though, uh, that these forges also make or can make something else, right? Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up. So, so the other really interesting thing about aluminum is that it can be used as propellant. And that's perhaps the, the, the best minimum viable product that we can make is propellant. So aluminum propellant, it's a, luckily it's a one inch diameter rod. So it's the same thing that we've been casting. It could be whatever length we want it. And the way these things work is it's kind of like an arc welder. So it's, it's, uh, it's, there's a high current spark. This causes some of the aluminum molecules to, to propel themselves offward. Um, force equals mass times acceleration. You get thrust. And, and this aluminum thruster, electric thruster technology is actually relatively high impulse. It's comparable maybe with uh, Krypton and, and, you know, similar electric propulsion uh, systems. 
And some metals like molybdenum can, can even be a, upwards of, uh, you know, similar to uh, uh, xenon and, and some of these other higher uh, ISP systems. Um, but looking at uh, aluminum as being similar to Krypton, uh, you know, that's what the first tranche of uh, Starlink satellites used in their propulsion systems. Uh, it's significantly higher ISP than, say, hydrazine, of seven to 10 times more ISP than hydrazine. So when you think about just logistics of refueling a station or a satellite or something like that, this, you know, seven to 10 times less propellant mass is, is pretty compelling. So the downside, though, just like any other electric propulsion system, is your thrust level is pretty low. Um, so, you know, this is probably not something that you would use to move humans quickly from one orbit to another or, you know, a really critical military or whatever mission you're trying to do where you need to move something quickly. This is more for um, cyclers like the trucks, the the logistics element, station keeping, uh, all, all the things that really are required to build that industrial foundational economy. And I, I just got to circle back, though, a little bit. I mean, like, really, how I mean, are you actually, when you use this as a thruster fuel, I mean, are you actually setting the metal on fire so that it can produce thrust? Can you just, like, give us, like, a quick third grade level explanation of how that kind of sort of works? Yeah, exactly. So, um, well, I've I've spent many hours staring at this thing operating in the vacuum chamber here at Colorado State University, who's, who uh, is, is testing the, the vacuum arc thruster, um, this is Neumann vacuum arc thruster that we're testing right now. And if you look at it with a high-speed camera, I mean, if you're looking at the naked eye, it looks like a little um, arc every second or two. Uh, there's just a little flash. And it, uh, it sort of looks like a, one of those old flash cameras going off. And it's, it's, it's very little. Each, each impulse, each pulse is, is very, it's in the micronewtons of thrust. It's not a lot. Um, but it's it's continuous, so it keeps pulsing, and, and it's every pulse adds up to actually be quite a bit of uh, propulsion or thrust at the end of the day. And and of course, there's other power levels. So right now, um, that's that's running at you know a few hundred watts. These things are going to go up uh, in much higher power levels, and it'll probably look a little more spectacular when we see them arc. <laughs> satellites and space debris, lunar or asteroid mining, you know, that's going to produce all kinds of metals, not just aluminum. So what metals are you designing the forge to handle? And when will we get to see this technology in space? So right now, our focus has been aluminum. Um, and that's simply because, uh, you know, going back to the 50s, uh, most things were made out of aluminum. Uh, now we're seeing more carbon fiber, things like that. And we're actually starting to do some work uh, as far as uh, if our DARPA project on, on how we might actually use um, carbon fiber and things like that. But right now, our near-term focus is, is aluminum. Like I said, um, pretty much any aluminum alloy uh, we can use in the furnace. Um, and then any kind of iron type of uh, metal uh, also works. Now, with the way the primary way we're using to melt and manipulate things is electromagnetic induction. Uh, and by v manipulating the frequencies and the powers of our electromagnetic induction system, uh, there's virtually anything that conducts electricity can be melted and manipulated. So, you know, there's the electromagnetic levitator on the space station. Currently, um, it uses very small samples, um, but it can melt virtually any kind of metal. Um, so, you know, as we move towards the future, you know, I would expect timeline our goal is by 2030 um, to be able to be making useful products, um, you know, like propellant, um, basic trusses, things like that out of aluminum. 
Uh, and then, you know, soon, shortly thereafter, we'll be making things out of stainless steels. Uh, you know, I'd just be, I'd just be guessing, but hopefully, uh, you know, sometime in the, in the years preceding that, we'd be getting into titaniums and some of these higher temperature metals that will be interesting for making rockets and stuff like that. Joe, thank you so much for explaining all of that. Thank you. It's been, it's really excellent. Now that we have the basics of how the technologies work, let's hear about the business, the hurdles, and what the Space Force wants from its investment. For this, we've got Gary Kalnan, Hervé Astier, and Patty Neumann. Here's our conversation. Hi, Patty, Gary, Hervé. Thank you guys so much for joining me on the Downlink Podcast. Thanks for having us. It's great to be here. All right. Thank you. Nice to meet you. Yeah. Yeah, th thanks, thanks for setting us up. This is great. So before we get into the business case and your company's very symbiotic business relationship, please take a moment to briefly introduce yourselves, where you are, and what your company does, and a little bit about yourselves and what you do for your respective organizations. Hervé, why don't you start? Yes. So my name is Ervin Asti. I'm the CEO of uh, Newman Space. Newman Space is, uh, I guess we define it as a space mobility company. So we design, build, um, test, and commercialize a propulsion system for satellite and spacecraft. The big difference, and we're going to talk about it with our system, is we're using solid metal as propellant. So we are a company headquartered in Adelaide in South Australia. Uh, working with as many people we can everywhere in the world and especially with our friends in the US. I think that's a good uh, lead into me. Hi, I'm Patty Neumann, um, the chief scientist and one of the founders of Neumann Space. At Lycove, I'm coming to you from beautiful, sunny downtown Adelaide. As the chief scientist, this is basically my baby. I studied plasma physics at the University of Sydney. That led into a pro project in plasma spacecraft propulsion systems using a cathodic arc plasma source. And with the results we got from that, led into a patent, founding company, getting investment, and several years down the track, uh, here we are today. Fabulous. And how about you, Gary? Where are you? And tell us a little bit what you do for Cislunar Industries. Sure. Um, so I'm, I'm head based here in Denver, Colorado, and I am the CEO and co-founder of Sisler Industries. Uh, my background is, is not in your typical, um, you know, space engineering background. I come from a business and finance background, entrepreneurship, had my first startup right out of college, uh, while I was still in my senior year. And, you know, that went on for a little while. Then I went to the corporate world, ended up with a finance career, some experience managing portfolios, but I always had this fascination and love for space. And since I was a little kid um, and I wanted to find a way into the industry without having to go back to school to get an engineering degree, I found the International Space University. I used that as my way of getting into the industry. I went there for the space, uh, the, the space studies program in the summer of 2017 in Cork, Ireland. And uh, that's where Sisler Industries was founded. I had set, set my mind to the idea that I wanted to be part of, you know, humans expansion on the frontier of, of space. And to me, um, after what I had learned going, before going in there, I, I knew that like, resources would be fundamental to making that a possibility in any sustainable fashion. And, um, and so you know, I quit my job as a director of finance going into that so that I could start a new company at that program. That's where Sisler Industries was born. 
Now, just before you guys, I have opened this episode with one of Cislunar Industries' co-founders, and that's Joe Powelski. He gave us a tutorial on the engineering behind the Space Forge and how metal can be used as a propellant. What I and the audience really need from you guys is the business case. And for that, I'm going to first turn to you, Gary, as your modular Space Forge is really the fulcrum of what I see as a circular space industrial chain. So to understand what demand your company is answering, can you first illustrate to the listeners just what's in that circular industrial chain, the flow, and where the Space Forge bridges the gap? Yeah, I think I think it's maybe good to take a step back and think about how we came up with the idea in the first place, because that sort of frames the identification of that business opportunity. Um, you know, we I looked at it from the big picture. We went in front of a whiteboard and we said, okay, if we're going to do resources in space, you know, what's out there right now? And in 2017, there were asteroid mining companies that, you know, were well-funded. Um, they were there out there showing that that could happen. There were companies doing in-space manufacturing. And if you draw the value chain from resource extraction, think mining or even, you know, recycled metals to producing goods, like a factory that makes a metal chair or some part or whatever, a new car, uh, somewhere those resources have to be turned into a material in the middle that can be then used by the manufacturers. And we didn't see any other companies that were talking about taking those raw materials that would be mined from asteroids or the moon or wherever um, and turning them into those you know, basic materials, think wire, uh, you know, tubes, sheet metal, that kind of thing um, that you could get from a mill on, on Earth and turning that into, into that kind of material in space to be used for in-space manufacturing. So we saw a gap, a fundamental gap in this economic value chain that we believed was going, was, you know, on the verge of becoming reality. I mean, the verge of is a bit of a long time frame in space, but still <laughs> it was, it was coming soon. Right. And we wanted to be out in front of that movement. Um, and so that's kind of, that, that was, that was where we found ourselves right in the middle of that value chain and how that gets into the circular economy. Um, as we were, you know, looking into this possibility, learned more about space debris, uh, realized that there was a lot of it out there. Um, and, wouldn't it be great? You know, this is a big problem that's getting bigger. Um, wouldn't it be great if we could actually use that material as a feedstock, as a raw material for for you know the the, the foundry, turn those turn it into end products to be used for manufacturing, and take what is currently a uh, like a cleanup problem and turn it into basically a mining opportunity um, for for the cleanup of that debris. And so that became the sort of the seed corn of this circular economy concept for uh, where now the way it's evolved with NASA's support and Space Force support now, um, and then are just kind of coincidentally figuring, finding out that Patty had thought of a similar concept separate from before I even you know came across his his idea about this of well I have this metal propellant wouldn't it be great if somebody could melt down space debris and turn it into fuel and you know that's how we came together originally was with this shared insight um you know we were the founder and he was the the propellant so that helps to, to drive this whole ecosystem and then you know the problem that it solves now becomes multiple fold right there there is a lot of metal in space there is a need for metal products in space and we need to turn the metal that's there into something that can be used for products so we're solving that problem of taking actually making these materials for a future economy where space manufacturing is happening 
We're also monetizing the waste of space debris and turning it into a valuable you know, resource as opposed to an expensive cleanup project. And be, being able to use that as propellant itself helps to drive down the cost of actually going out and getting that debris in the first place. So all this stuff becomes a cost-reducing exercise as the loop you know, feeds back on itself. Every time we pick up some debris, we make a fraction of that into metal, to, metal propellant to pick up more debris, and the rest of it's left over to you know, manufacture things with. So hopefully it's not just a reduction in cost, which of course is always a good thing for the space economy, but it's also hopefully going to be, you know, something that's going to earn some profit too, right? Oh yeah, exactly. Right. Now, a lot of folks in, as well as outside of the space community may think that this is a cute aspirational idea. (laughs) That it's at least a decade, if not more, before it's time. But that is not really the view of the Space Force, is it? Or DARPA. So, and 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 they're actually, you know, talking, you know, about millions of dollars in contracts. And if I'm not mistaken, you know, at Cislunar Industries, you already have contracts. So, Gary, what's the Space Force after here? What does the Space Forge do that fits in to its actual strategy? Um, so, so what we've been able to do with the Space Force and how we brought Neumann Space into the U.S. government ecosystem um, was to we we won a directive phase two under their Orbital Prime program, which is a SBIR or Small Business Innovation Research Grant or contracting program. You know, we built the whole concept around what we call a metal propulsion or metal, metal propellant ecosystem, um, and that's built on the idea of recycling space debris and turning it into metal propellant to serve the Space Force is growing need for this concept of, uh, you know, what are they calling it? Dynamic space operations or maneuver without regret. There's a number of slogans that I've heard over the years for this concept, but basically just like you want to be able to refuel aircraft, you know, on, on Earth to do missions, the Space Force wants to be able to refuel satellites and spacecraft on orbit, and they want more than one option to do that. So right now you got to haul all your propellant up from Earth, and that might be chemical propellant or other gases, um, you know, like xenon or krypton for electric propulsion. Uh, but if we have um, the ability to take space debris or other metal that's in situ in in the environment of space and turn it into propellant, that actually gives them another option that's separate from the supply chain that's from Earth. So it adds flexibility to the space force. It serves certain missions that don't require high thrust, um, you know, operations. And helps to build this logistics ecosystem as a foundational piece of that puzzle um, that will be needed for a, a wide array of things, not just propellant production, uh, but also manufacturing and recycling and salvage and other things could all be on these same you know, platforms where this recycling is done. Now, Patty, Array, I have not been ignoring you, I promise. I just <laughs> wanted to set the scene for what I believe, and correct me if I'm wrong, is the first time an Australian company is providing the thrusters for a U.S. military space contract. So the technology the Neumann Drive has, which is a patented pulsed cathodic arc thruster, it's really special, right? I've read that it also has set an impulse record. So how were you and Cislunar Industries able to get the U.S. government, not just the Department of Defense, which is already tough, to sign off on this commercial collaboration for defense purposes? Well, um, 
Yeah, uh, I think it's uh, to the credit of, of Gary and his team <laughs> to to push the boundaries there uh, on your side. Uh, certainly, being a foreign company, it's always a, a challenge to uh, to work in the US. And and for us at the moment, not yet having an entity in the US uh, made things a little bit more complicated. So um, yeah, we work with with uh, Gary and the team at Cisner on the technical aspect. I think you know. The way I'll go back for a minute, but the way this all started, we said what uh, Gary was saying was a call from from Gary and Joe. I think um, early 2021, I believe, where they said, "Oh, we want to do this thing, and uh, you know, if we send you some samples, can you can you test it?" And 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 I remember with Paddy, we were like, "This is a crazy thing because it will take a long time for those guys to do this." <laughs> But let's say yes to that and, and see what happens. And, uh, you know, with, with the support they got from, from NASA, very quickly they had a, a prototype and samples that they sent us. Yeah. So they sent us those samples, we put it in the system, and uh, and then, of course, it works. So we, we told them, yeah, we can generate trust with that. Uh, and I remember saying to Gary, okay, this is cool, we have done it, and, you know, what's next? Because, you know, that was not really on our path, although Paddy had that vision already years ago. And and, and the Cicero guy said, oh, look, we, uh, we are going to do... Uh, live technology demonstration session, right, online. And I'm like, no, 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 we cannot do that. It's crazy, all right? It, it's too early, tech and everything. But uh, they they did that, and they brought, you know, NASA, and I don't think there was a Space Force yet, but, you know, they brought uh, U.S. government into it, uh, and, and we did the same on our side also. And it worked perfectly fine. So I think that was also a first step to show our respective government that, okay, we can we can do some some good stuff, right? Um, and then, you know, more from a contractual perspective, the way we did that with, with Gary is they went to get authorization from, I don't know, USDOD or, or Space Force, uh, Gary can clarify that, uh, to have us coming as a, you know, subcontractor into it or a procurement contract. Uh, so that's how we did it for that first step. And then uh, we'll see how we do the next one because obviously we want to continue that relationship. So Gary, what were the hurdles? I mean, you've you've got to get, you know, special, I mean, special technical agreement type level stuff signed off, no? So with, with this one, it was interesting because we were able to make the case because we'd already done the work with Neumann with our NASA contract to prove, you know, that, that it could produce thrust. And that was part of the previous work that we'd done. Um, that was part of the use case that they were buying into for the Orbital Prime program, which is all about debris removal. And this kind of fits really nicely with that whole architecture. Just uh, hang on a second. I'm so sorry to interrupt you, but an Orbital Prime program belongs to who? Uh, the Space Force, um, Space Works, Space Force, they launched this thing called Orbital Prime, which was designed to catalyze uh, a lot of the technologies that would be needed to do a debris removal mission, which includes things like rendezvous proximity operations, robotics, you know, all the things you would need. And then the actual how do we actually do the recycling or removal of, of things at the end of this whole process. All those technologies are useful, not just for debris removal, but also for satellite servicing and all kinds of other things they wanted to do. But they saw it as a good focal point to catalyze these technologies and move them forward under this like rapid iterative, you know, design process that a lot of different companies have been able to participate with their different skills and, and technologies that they bring to the table. So it's been a pretty cool program to be part of. And, and part of what they're doing with that program is trying to, as I understand it anyway, I don't want to speak for them, but um, what we observed anyway is to sort of break some of the standard expectations from government contracting. And you usually think, oh, it's going to be a long process. We're going to go through all these approvals. It'll take forever. But they had, when we won that contract, 
they were ready to turn it around and sign it within like weeks. And we, we were, it was too fast for us because we didn't have everything. We didn't know that it was going to be going to win it. And we didn't have all the pieces necessarily lined up right away. So um, it was so fast that it was like, we had to, we actually slowed it down by like a week or two to make sure we had everything lined up. But. And so what was the reaction though, when they, you know, heard from you like, Hey, and we're going to be using some foreign sovereign technology. I mean, yeah, it is from I, a Five Eyes country, but still. Right. Well, I, I think I think that that's why I was framing up their way of doing business differently because um, we I think the timing is really good with the geopolitical nature of of China U.S. rivalry and and trying to build up our allies in the region. Like working with an Australian company is particularly attractive, right? Uh, to to the to the U.S. government and the Space Force in particular. Um, but, but we had just, you know, we were cautioned by some people who were experienced in the industry, like, Hey, maybe you should try to find an alternative U S company that has some metal propulsion concept or whatever. But really we already knew that we wanted to work with Norman space because we were, we had developed this capability together in a way. Um, and it was the best fit for what we were trying to do. So we just asked, we just put it out there and said, this is the best company for us to partner with to, to do this and ask them if we could procure a thruster. So instead of having them be a, a subcontractor and get paid as a subcontractor, which would technically be against the rules for an SBIR without some special waiver, um, we asked if we could procure from a foreign company where no other company could make this same exact thruster because they have a patent on it. They're the only ones who make it. That's the conditions under which you could purchase from a foreign company you know, under the rules of SBIR in the DoD. Um, you know, we just find, you have to be creative about how you structure things, I guess, is, is really the key. Yeah, but, sorry, you know, I was going to add to that um, because I think like Gary was saying, the time was right and the geopolitical environment changing very fast. You know, on our side, we didn't have to involve so much government, export control, of course, making sure that they are fine with this kind of stuff. But we have, uh, we have the advantage in Adelaide here to be sitting right next to the space agency. So... We keep them involved in what you think we're doing, so that helped in building that relationship. But the other thing that has um, happened since then that will certainly help for for growing that you know partnership with Cislunar is the the Oculus agreements uh, that I'm sure you're across uh, between our respective countries. So yes, we are a five eye country, but no, we are we also have the Oculus agreement. We have the Technology Safeguard Agreement, the TSA. So I think that will make it even easier for Gary and us to work together. And, and yeah. grow that uh, ecosystem and, and business opportunity in the end. Another thing that I'd like to get to um, before we move on or highlight is that this project with Cislunar Industries is not the only means that the Neumann Drive is earning space heritage. Patty, why don't you answer this one? Where has the drive been tested in space and when and what other projects are in the pipeline? Okay. Uh, we've got two of our first generation small CubeSat thrusters on orbit. Um, these were launched as technology demonstration missions. Uh, one on the Spirit mission, which is funded by the Australian Space Agency, led by the University of Melbourne. And uh, we're very proud to be part of that one. It's the first Australian mission that hosted another national agency's uh, payload with a X-ray and gamma ray detector from the Italian Space Agency. Uh, that launched towards the end of last year, and the system is still going through its various commissioning phases because there's a lot of different payloads on board. Uh, more news on that one to come. Uh, that was 
the first mission that we contracted for, but the second one to launch, because sometimes space is weird like that. Uh, the first one to launch was uh, a mission where we were a hosted payload on one of Skycraft's uh, satellites that launched at the in, in the middle of last year. And that went up. It fulfilled all of its mission requirements. And we got the data we needed from it. It was fantastic. A very fast, quick mission, easy to work with the folks over at Skycraft. And that's where we are to date. We have three more. Three? Yeah, three of our second generation ones, which are rated for a higher uh, maximum power draw from the spacecraft. Whether they actually draw that amount, that's depending on what the spacecraft can actually provide. Um, the system is a, is a pulsed thruster. Uh, think of it like the cross between a camera flash and an arc welder. When we've got the, we strike the arc, we make the plasma, that's the welding side of things. But the camera flash is you charge up the capacitor bank to store the energy to drive the arc and then trigger the arc when it's time for it to go. If you've only got a little amount of power available on the spacecraft, that can take a while. Obviously, the more pulses per second, the faster you wind up going. So this smaller, harder, faster, better, stronger version, we've got three on the go and a few more coming along in the future. And for that, I'm going to pass over to Hervé. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to, um, yeah, we have three more to go. Um, two, two maybe important points. Um, one is the, the first two that uh, we did last year that are in orbit today. They were Australian satellites. Uh, the next three are European satellites. What's important with that is, is we are, we have two in orbit, so we're getting that flight every stage we are enhancing the performance of the, the system and getting more flight heritage this year and with more to come after that. Uh, so what it brings is guarantee to Cislunar and the Space Force. It's not something that, you know, we'll see if it works. It's something we can already say it works. So that's a, that's a big, massive difference. Uh, the other thing that is important is um, the fact that there it's not only a market for defense, it's also a commercial market. So you want to talk about, about that business aspect. So for us, that you know, our project with Cislunar started as a almost a side project, if you want. Like we, our target was okay, commercial outcome, developing resolution satellites today. And like we said before, the the metal-based system from from Cislunar is in development, and they are growing very very fast, which is absolutely awesome. But for us, we have commercial uh, incentive already today, so which which is perfect. So. That's important because it allows us to develop our system, plug into system when they are ready and offer a solution to the U.S. Space Force. And speaking of other projects, there's something else I think space investors, especially VCs, including the corporate kind, really need to understand about investing in big ideas and the return on investment, especially the timing of that return and that the power converter that Cislunar Industries is already selling, right? I mean, there there is a power converter that that you guys developed that you have customers for, right, Gary? I mean, wh why don't you tell us a bit about that very monetarily fortunate development? Yeah, it's really it's really kind of a cool um, and and not uncommon if you hear stories about startup companies how things kind of evolve. But for us, there were many years where it was like, okay, this is a really cool idea, processing metal in space, being you know the mills of this economy. It's gonna yeah, see, and if, you know, if investors would be 
aware and, and believed that this was going to be a thing someday. There's a lot of uncertainty about when was this going to be a market. And, and there was always a question of, well, can you guys find a way to monetize your technology right now on the ground? Like, is there a market today that you can apply your tech to? So we were always kind of on the lookout for this. And, you know, kind of fortuitously, as we were building the technology for our NASA phase one um, SBIR, we needed a power conversion system that could drive an induction furnace, taking you know, DC current from a, a solar panel or simulation of that and turning it into a high power AC current so that we could do induction heating and control of this molten material. We talked to companies that built induction heaters, didn't find any that could be, I mean, they make them, but they're big, they're bulky, they're expensive. They are not space designed and they never will be unless these companies to try decide to totally pivot what they're doing. And so we built our own, uh, built the first one. It was about the size of a toaster oven. Um, you know, it was kind of clunky. It did, the, it did the job. It worked. And, uh, and it was really cool to, to have that thing work the way we wanted it to. And then we brought our expert in power electronics, this guy, Steve Ward, who was able to take after that project and between that and our phase two with NASA, take that box and turn it into this small card sized unit that was about the size of a deck of cards that could do the same thing. And we were using that for this purpose to drive the furnace. We went and talked to some experts at um, CSU about various ideas on how we could apply this technology, you know, with the Neumann thruster and other things. And, and those guys are like, you know what guys, like this looks a lot like uh, the power converter for a PPU for our power propulsion unit. Let me explain the, the acronym there. Um, that it would drive an electric propulsion system, like a standard one, not not a ex- newer one. And I'm like, oh, that's cool. And it's like, you know, it, it seems like it might be a little bit better than some of the stuff that that's out there on the market today, which is kind of old and has heritage and works, but it's, you know, it's been done for a while. And so we looked into that and sure enough, it turns out that there is a demand on the market for power converters that are at a higher power level, say like a kilowatt and higher. You know, if you look at the, the small sat market, like the CubeSat size market, there's tons of power converters out there that are just commercial off the shelf. You know, they're ready to go. They're relatively inexpensive, space rated, but they don't go to the high power levels. And traditionally, those high power missions, as we've learned, talking to companies like, you know, large primes and others uh, in, in startups, you know, these are things that are bespoke. They're made for very specialized missions. They make a few of them. And so each one is very expensive and it involves all the engineering that goes into it. And since we were building this, you know, newer version for our own purposes for a furnace, we already had developed a small scale unit that could go, that was designed to eventually be a space rated product, um, was small and scalable and modular in design. And we realized we could take that same design principle and apply it to this need as satellites have continued to demand more and more power for more and more capability, both for propulsion and for sensing and whatnot, to serve this need in the market. And so we already have been able to, um, we use it for ourselves, for our own induction furnace capability. We've sold it to a customer for high voltage application, um, which will be used for sort of in-space uh, manufacturing technology that they're developing. And we've we've worked with Safran Space because they want to take their traditional Hall effect thruster to the U.S. market. And they don't want to use, you know, their PPU that's older and not as modern as this one. And they like the idea of having a U.S. partner that can supply the PPU because they need a U.S. supplier. So now we have this idea of you know, taking our technology that was designed for the furnace and applying it to this huge market need for lots of things. Because when you think about the scope of this, um, if you take a satellite in space, anything in space, except for lighting a rocket and burning propellant, okay, like chemical propulsion, everything else is electrical. 
You're taking electrical power from one source, solar, nuclear, whatever, and turning it into another form of power to drive a thruster, a sensor, a bus, whatever, the whole, the whole system. All this is power driven. And everywhere in there is some kind of power converter. So we're trying to make something that's, you know, somewhat like Joe likes to say, um, it's, you know, one size fits most, like like hats. <laughs> and and you could just take that core capability and add different modules to, to the ends of it to make it apply for different use cases. And then we can scale to lots of different markets, drive our costs down internally for those parts because we use common subsystems and, you know, help to solve these problems. As we've taken this to market and talked to various customers, besides the two we sold already, um, we are finding, you know, applications all over the place for people who need this for their satellite constellation. They don't like the one that they're getting. It doesn't have the efficiency numbers they want. It's too big. It weighs too much per kilogram, whatever. They have different needs that we can help them address. And really every week we're seeing new opportunities for this, for everything from, you know, rovers on the moon to to satellite constellations to propulsion systems to, to whatever. So it's been a really interesting opportunity that we hope to really monetize this year. And so... This next question is actually the last question, and it's for all of you. It's also topical. What is the effect of having at least two, if not three, U.S. commercial launches to the moon? The Japanese are about to attempt a landing this week. You know, how will all these launches and all this activity um, that's happening on the moon, near the moon, going to the moon, you know, how will it affect your very particular businesses? And Hervé, why don't you start? Yes, for sure. Um, look, it's good. Uh, we're certainly looking forward to really to go back to the moon. Um, Australia, a long, long time ago, was a partner to the U.S. Uh, for the first moon landing from a communication perspective. And now the Australian um, government, the Australian Space Agency, has a program they call the Moon to Mars program, which uh, provides you know support and, and funding for Australian companies to work with U.S. company and NASA to go back to the moon. And they also have a, actually a rover, they call it the rover, um, that, that will go to the moon. So... For us directly, it is important, um, you know, Gary, for sure, is an incentive for, you know, building material on the moon and, and, and you know, making propellants on the moon. Um, for us, we have also that uh, benefit, and it's twofold. One is uh, you'll need constellation of satellites around the moon. So, you know, our system works perfectly for that because of nature of the fuel once again. Uh, our system can also have other applications, not as propulsion, but more in terms of manufacturing because it's a vacuum deposition system. So there may be application on the moon. I'm sure there will be application on the moon that, uh, that we're akin to, uh, to pursue. So definitely it's another, you know, it's, it's, um, you know, it's another wide open space. And Patty, what do you think? To build on Hervé, yeah. If you want to do constellations around the moon, you've got to deal with the fact the moon is a very weird shape. Uh, gravitationally it's got mass concentrations all over the place as well as bits blasted out of it there are no stable orbits that are circular and below about 150 kilometers altitude uh if you want to have a nice elliptical orbit and hang over large parts of the moon for a long time that's great there are no stable orbits that meet all the requirements you need a propulsion system and that system has to be durable refuelable and have a propellant that's not going to get boiled off. And <laughs> unlike uh, the, the terribly sad news from the Peregrine Lander this last week, uh, they had a stuck valve with their, uh, I believe the current uh, diagnostics is helium pressurant tank on their oxidizer. Um, this is 
sadly one of the the side effects of needing a fluid fuel. A solid fuel does not need this, so we don't have to worry about tank and plumbing issues. Additionally, as Hervé says, this system evolved from an industrial manufacturing technology. Thin film deposition is used in a host of industries, everything from the fancy coatings on your eyeglasses to reduce glare and do polarization, all the way through to making the plastic taps in your plumbing store look pretty by having chrome and nickel deposited onto them. So the chances of there being a an application for this technology on the lunar surface is unity. There will be some use for this. There's already a few that have been spitballed around and uh, being able to use in situ resources to build these coatings is quite important. So you can build stuff on the moon from stuff you found on the moon using an induction furnace to refine the uh, nickel iron meteorite droplets that's in lunar soil is one of the low hanging fruit. After you, however, you get the titanium and aluminium out of the lunar soil, you then have to heat it up, form it, put it into useful shapes, and then pass it off to the machine shops to actually do the machining. But you need that raw feedstock from somewhere. Everything is coming together for this, and it's driven by humans, humanity's return to the moon. And Gary, you have the last word. How is this <laughs> going to help cislunar industries, all this lunar activity? I mean, yeah, for, for us, that's huge. Like we, we, we sort of set up our name with the L capitalized in the cislunar, which is not standard because we did envision being on the lunar surface at some point and having that be part of the puzzle for us and having metal production, you know, in foundries that were on the lunar surface and not just in, in, in space as well. Um, and all the stuff that Herve and Patty talked about, both in terms of making metal propellant for, you know, station keeping with the various platforms that are expected around the, in lunar orbit and the satellite constellations, as well as the the numerous applications for uh, deposition, metal deposition on the surface. I mean, yeah, we have spitballed some interesting ideas and there are many possibilities out there. So I know that'll be part of it. Uh, but yeah, we, we've actually been able to capitalize on this recently with the, the DARPA Luna 10 project that has launched uh, recently and, and we, we report part of, um, which is just further evidence that, you know, there there is a critical mass of activity, I feel like, that's that's happening and moving towards the lunar surface. It's really a few things have happened already, but not a lot. And there's a lot of things planned for the near future, as you as you noted. And it's really looking exciting for how this comes together. I mean, the Luna 10 thing with DARPA, they're trying to catalyze this, this um, you know, architecture for, for a, a lunar economy that relies on multiple players, just like we have uh, the economy here on Earth. And to me, this is the way it needs to be done. This is a sustainable, you know, forward path to have a growing community on a lunar surface um, that serves a whole wide array of, of customers and helps to lay the foundation for really what becomes a solar system wide kind of economy someday. I mean, this is, this is where it starts in cislunar space. Like this is why we're cislunar industries because we see this as the industrial foundation for, you know, a, a large economy in space um, going well beyond the earth moon system. So I, I couldn't be more excited to see that we, you know, as we said in our press release right afterwards, we now have a foothold on the moon with this Luna 10 project. And, um, and I look forward to seeing all the ways that we can collaborate with Neumann space, both with the propulsion and, you know, other applications for metal deposition on the on the lunar surface too. So it's really fun. Gary, Patty, Hervé, 
Thank you all so much for your time and for coming on the podcast. Pleasure. Thank you, Laura. You're always welcome. Thank you very much for having us. This is very fun. That's it for this week. If you like what you're hearing, follow the downlink on Twitter and subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast platform. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Daily Defense and Aerospace Report podcast hosted by Vago Maradian and listen to Cavish Ships to hear the latest on what's happening in the maritime domain. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening. Thank you.